So my uh, my iPad isn't working today, so poor Rex is going to have to uh, uh, keep up with me today. But uh, apart from that, uh, let's just g- let's get into it. Today we're looking uh, still again at portraits of Jesus found in Scripture that maybe uh, isn't the ones that are uh, known to us, but but really kind of maybe a um, uh, parts of the stories that we maybe gloss over. And we'll see if that actually works. Or Hey, I think I've got it back on my iPad. All that running around did absolutely nothing. I got it up to the pulpit and it magically works. I love Jesus sometimes. So uh, what we're looking at today is, is twisted. And so the scripture that was read for us uh, started here in Mark chapter 3. It said, uh, again, talking about Jesus, again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Uh, and that withered hand is in some translation actually translated as twisted, a man with a a twisted hand. Uh, And so when we look here uh, at scripture, no, I've got an error again, so you might have to try and keep up with me. Sorry about that. Uh, So when we look at this, what we see is Jesus once again going into a local synagogue on the Sabbath and being presented with a problem. Now, there's a couple of things that jumps out at me just uh, off the bat from this particular scripture. It doesn't say that Jesus went into the synagogue to try and heal a person. Uh, It didn't say that Jesus goes in to try and pick a fight. Rather, it just says that Jesus went into a synagogue. Uh, I imagine, like most of us, he came into church on a Sunday just to sit down and to fellowship. He wasn't there to proclaim himself Messiah, to proclaim himself anything. He was just going to the synagogue on a Sabbath. And you have to imagine uh, Jesus' surprise when we read in verse 2. So this is Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 2. It says, And they watched Jesus, and that being the Pharisees and teachers, they watched Jesus to see whether or not he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. So these Pharisees, these church leaders, these pastors and ministers are there on the Sabbath. They're about to do church. They see Jesus walking in from the background. They know that there's a man there that has a withered hand. And they're like, hmm, I wonder if he's going to heal him on the Sabbath and we're going we're to be able to accuse him of doing something wrong. And so today's uh, sermon is really going to be about two things. It's going to be about a, a failed system and a frustrated savior, a failed system, and a frustrated savior. And so we're going to do a little bit of uh, theological groundwork today. I hope you uh, don't mind. But what you need to do uh, at the very beginning when you're thinking about this failed system is know that the Pharisees were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And what I found in my experience is that you will always find what you're looking for if you're looking for something wrong. You're always going to find what you're looking for if what you're looking for is a reason not to do something. If you're looking for an excuse to get out of something, there's always going to be a million reasons there. Man, I can't come to church today. I had a long, you know, it was a long uh, work week. You know, I, I worked really hard and I got really tired and my Saturday got sort of sucked away and I re- I'm just, I'm too tired to do church today. So I'm just going to stay. Jesus understands. Jesus knows the work that I was doing. So I'm not going to go to church on Sunday. I'm just going to sit here and, uh, and, and watch the Pro Bowl and uh, everything's going to be fine. You're always going to find an excuse 
if you're looking for it. You're always going to find something wrong if you're looking for it. And so these Pharisees are looking for something wrong with Jesus. They're trying to find a reason to accuse him. They're trying to find a way not to get on board with what he's doing. And if you ever ask yourself, why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? The answer is actually relatively simple and an answer that still holds true today. The Pharisees had power. The Pharisees had influence. When people came to them with questions, they were the ones that gave the answers. They were the ones that gave commands. And you will find in every single system, if you ever threaten the person with the power, you're going to find yourself at odds with that system. Tell me if that's not still true today. That if someone holds power, they're going to do everything in their, uh, in their considerable power to hold on to it. And, and we face that today. And so if you're, if you're looking for something wrong, you're always going to find it. And so again, in this situation, we looked at this yesterday, uh, uh, sorry, we looked at this last week, uh, that this man doesn't really have an identity. This man uh, is a situation, and so uh, the identity versus the situation, we don't know who he is, we don't know his work life, we don't know his family life, we don't know if he's a regular at this synagogue, we don't know anything really about him. What we know is that he has a withered hand. And that's really interesting because if, he, if he's the owner of a withered hand, he shouldn't be in the synagogue because he's unclean. So why is he in the synagogue with a withered hand? Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it actually tells us that his withered hand is uh, actually his work hand. It says uh, that his, uh, the hand that he does work with, so you've got to imagine that it's his dominant hand. I'm right-handed because I'm normal. Some of you are left-handed because you're weird. Um, <clears throat> I, so, but you have to imagine, if this is his right hand, how do, you shake, how do you shake hands if you've got a withered hand? Because he can't show anyone this. Because if he shows someone this, he's not allowed through the doors of the church. So you've got to imagine that this guy, who we don't know who he is, with this withered hand, with this twisted hand, it, it, maybe, it's, maybe he's keeping it in his pocket and he's just like, eh, how you doing? You know, that, that nod of the head that you do when you can't remember someone's name. Oh, hi, how you doing? His identity versus his situation. His situation is not his hand. Mark doesn't tell us this story because of his hand. Mark tells us this story because of the people's hearts. So if you, if you track with me here, already what we see, uh, we sort of see that the Pharisees are missing the point. They're looking for something to trap Jesus. They're looking for something wrong with the teachings and ministry of Jesus. And, and Jesus is just trying to look for a good day on a Sunday and suddenly Jesus comes into this situation with this man who has a withered hand. And all of this background leads us to the Sabbath. And, and this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time today, is understanding the Sabbath. Because some of you know what it is, some of you don't. <clears throat> some of you may have studied the Sabbath. Some of you, probably the majority, don't know really how intense some of the rules around the Sabbath were. So we're going to begin here with just a little bit of a, of a biblical history lesson. The Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. You all with me so far? On the Sabbath, you will keep the Sabbath day holy. You will rest uh, because I rested on the Sabbath. Uh, paraphrase. What the Pharisees, teachers of the law, rabbis, and, 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 and people around in this area, they had taken this one rule, you will rest on the Sabbath, you will keep the Sabbath holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And they had actually built out around that Sabbath over 600 different rules about the Sabbath. 
So you've got one rule given by Jesus, keep the Sabbath day holy. In order to interpret that rule, the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the laws and rabbis had created 600 additional rules in exactly how you keep that Sabbath holy. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, There was one particular rule that you could walk 1,999 paces on the Sabbath. But the moment, without working and without uh, upsetting the Sabbath, the moment you took that 2,000th step, you were working and you had broken the the law of the Sabbath. Today in Israel, there is actually, and I find this fascinating, uh, um, they had this 2,000 paces rule and what one rabbi did is he said, well, some people, they have to travel by boat to get here and there and so what we're going to do, you can't measure steps by water, when you're traveling over water. And so what I'm going to say that there's one of these rules about the Sabbath is you can actually travel over water on the Sabbath and it doesn't count. And I kid you not, there are torrent observant Jews today in Israel who will take a bottle of water, put it under the front seat of their car so they're traveling over water on the Sabbath so they can drive places. I didn't make that up. That is a true story. In Israel today, there are, in most hotels that have multiple stories, there are two sets of ele- elevators. There is a Gentile elevator and a Jewish Sabbath elevator. On the Sabbath, the Sabbath elevator will stop at every single floor because some rabbi said that pushing the button constitutes work. So they need to get to their hotel room, but they can't push a button because it's work, and so that elevator will stop at every single floor. And Jews will, uh, observant Jews will see Gentiles uh, going onto the other elevator, and they'll rush that elevator and say, could you just press uh, floor 30 for me? Thank you. So they don't have to stop at every single floor. Here's one that I found that was interesting. On the Sabbath, uh, Sabbath, by the way, in case you're wondering, starts sundown Friday and lasts till sundown Saturday. It's a full 24-hour period. Uh, If you dislocate a joint on the Sabbath, you are not allowed to put it back in because that constitutes work. If you dislocate your thumb or your shoulder or your hand or whatever it happens to be, you are not allowed to reset it for a 24-hour period because it constitutes work work. There are over 600 of these rules about the Sabbath. And so what I'm trying to, to, to give to you is that what the Pharisees had done is taken a command of God that was good and holy and had wrapped it up in a twisted system. So the sermon is called Twisted because of this man's hand, but it's not the only thing in this story that's twisted. These these pharisaical uh, interpretations of the law were twisted. And Sabbath is actually a really good thing. It's it's an amazing thing once you study it. And so Sabbath comes, uh, obviously, like I said, from the Ten Commandments, but it has its roots in the book of Genesis, in fact, the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, If you read the first chapter of Genesis, what you'll find very quickly, you'll understand that it's actually written in a poetic form. Uh, If you read it in Hebrew, the first uh, sentence of Genesis 1 has seven letters. The second uh, verse has 14 letters. The third verse has 21 letters. And as you keep going through it, you'll find uh, uh, sevens and patterns of sevens repeated all over the place. It's here, it's 
it's there, it's everywhere. And in, in the Hebrew, uh, the way that it's written, there are two very glaring breaks from the, the, the poems in the opening chapter of Genesis. One is on the fourth day when it says, oh sorry, on the third day it says that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to mark the days, the years, and the seasons. And that was very important for the Jews at the time because uh, when they were hearing this Genesis story, when, when Moses first wrote it down and started sharing with the people of Israel, where were they? In captivity. You read about it in the book of Exodus, is that these Israelites were in captivity and it didn't really matter what the days, the years, and the seasons were because Pharaoh had them under the yoke of oppression. And then if you continue the pattern of Genesis through, 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 it gets to the seventh day and it very glaringly ends with, and on the seventh day God rested. And so what the the Israelites were hearing when they would read this story of the creation is that there is a time and season for work And then there is a day that God wants you to rest. There's a day that God wants you to put the brakes on. He wants you to slow down, to stop, and to focus on him. That's what the Sabbath is about. Uh, A lot of people try and wrap it up in all of these rules. But God gives the Israelites the picture of the Sabbath, gives them the, the Sabbath as a picture of how God rested and a shadow of the rest that will come when we eventually cease from our work and receive by grace what we could not obtain by labor. That's what the Sabbath is. It's a picture of God's ultimate plan for us that, hey, you can work and work and work and work and you're never going to achieve the uh, the salvation that you need by work. You're never going to obtain the grace that you need to come into my favor by work. You're never going to have the restoration that you need by work. You need to be able to stop and rest in me. And so the Sabbath is telling this story over and over and over again that you cannot do it by yourself, that you cannot receive it by yourself. In fact, uh, Jesus said it in the chapter earlier in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He says that the Sabbath was made for you guys, not so that you can observe it, so you can rest. And when you think about it, this is what mankind does. This is what humankind does over and over and over again. We take things that God made for good and we make them our idols and they become uh, slave masters over us. God made a lot of things simply for us to enjoy. Do you realize that? There are things that God put on this earth for absolutely no reason but to enjoy. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example of one of my favorites. There's this little green bean that grows on a plant, and once it's picked and roasted and then poured over water and you drink that liquid, it becomes this thing called coffee. And it is a miracle of God. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, some of you might be tea drinkers. That's okay. We have the altars available for you. But when you drink that, there's no coffee doesn't do anything for this earth, this planet. It doesn't, it doesn't really have a purpose. You might argue that it's there for the bees to pollinate and cross-pollinate. You know, there's minute things like that. But there's no reason for that coffee to be there, except that God knew. God knew what it was going to be like when you woke up early in the morning and you'd gone to bed late the night before and you needed to... You need that little jolt, that little pick-me-up, that little 
oh, Lord, help me through this day. And he says, I got you back, brother. Hit the Keurig button. Here it is. There are so many things, and maybe coffee isn't your thing, that's fine, but there's so many things on this earth that God gave to us simply for the enjoyment, simply that he could be glorified when we do enjoy it, simply so that, that when we look at something that gives us uh, an innate sense of beauty, something that gives us that, that feeling that we talked about uh, last week, the feeling that's here in the gut, that we can look at it and say, man, that's, that's just incredible. Incredible, which is why artwork moves us. It's why a sunset moves us to worship. It's why uh, when you go out to an ocean and you see the, the incredible expanse in front of you, you can be overwhelmed simply by the, the power and majesty of an incredible God. And so what we do, we take these things that were made for man, and instead what we do is we try and serve them rather than have them serve us. There are more horrendous examples that you can, we can think of. Um, most of you will have a computer screen in front of you in the form of a cell phone. That cell phone is an amazing thing. Uh, I am originally from Australia. My mother lives not only in a different time zone, not only in a different country, she lives in a different hemisphere. And there's this device that I can hold in my hand that I can press a button and I can hear her talk no matter what time, no matter where I am. That's an incredible gift from God that I'm able to communicate over vast distances. And yet, when you look around the world, most people are addicted to these same little things and we start worshipping them. Uh, doctors have started showing in studies that the fear of losing the phone is an actual phobia and that people can go into panic attacks if they can't locate their cell phone. Like legitimate, constricted breathing, I can't think, I can't breathe, my face is getting red and flustered, panic attack simply because this device is not within my vision, it's not within my grasp. God made things for man, not man for things. And if you look through all of Scripture, most of the problems that mankind gets into is when we take these things that God created for good and we start worshipping them rather than the Creator God which is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans, that they took the, the created order and they started worshipping the creation rather than the eternal God who is forever praised. Amen. The situation is not this withered man's hand. The situation is these people's hearts. It's these Pharisees' hearts. This guy has a deformity that's going to stop him from working. He has a deformity that's going to stop him from going into church and enjoying fellowship with other believers, that's going to stop him from making the sacrifices to atone for his sins. And the Pharisees are missing. They're missing this big point that things were made for man and the man and the man not for things, that the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So we're continuing on in our story in Mark 3, verse 3 to 5 says this, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Pause it. That must have been a little bit awkward for the man, yeah? Like, because he has to have been hiding this in some way, shape, or form to get into the synagogue. Um, and so he, he doesn't want to be called out. Like, if you have a sin in your life uh, that you know about, you don't want me from the stage calling you out, Right? 
Like, let's just be honest, be, be, be really real here, let's, let's just figure this out. If I knew something in your life that you were doing that was sinful, you wouldn't want me from the platform standing up here with the mic and saying, hey, Alan, I'm just going to pick on Alan every week. It's just, it's, you're, all, you're okay, everyone else is okay with that, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Alan, stand on up, you got a withered hand. Like, the, you don't want that. Like, let's, let's ignore the fact that the rumors of Jesus had already started to spread. So people have already started thinking him as the Messiah and the Savior. He's got a reputation. He has to go off uh, last week. He has to start living in the lonely places because the crowds are mobbing him. So Jesus has a reputation at this point. And so Jesus pointing at you and saying, stand up, I'm going to fix what's wrong with you. That's got to make the stomach drop out a little bit, right? That's that roller coaster over the top. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And that guy's got to be thinking, oh, crap, here we go. What is going to happen? What is... And Jesus said to them, and this time he's addressing the Pharisees here. And this is one of the 600 laws that I didn't actually get to mention. Uh, If someone was dying, it was lawful to save them. Isn't that so nice of the Pharisees to allow that? Like if someone's bleeding and, and you think they might die from bleeding out, you're allowed to patch the bullet hole. It was a very nice concession of the Pharisees. So Jesus asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. Because if someone is defending a system that is indefensible, when asked a truthful question, they can't defend it. When a system is indefensible... There is no true question that they can withstand that system not falling in under itself like a weight, like a collapsing house with no foundation. And so Jesus asks them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Because if they had said, yeah, it's, you know, you're, you're not allowed to do good, you've got to just stick to yourself, he'll bring this out and say, really, but you can... You can heal someone on the Sabbath. You can, you can save a life on the Sabbath. Where's the degree? Where is the line that you draw in the sand? Instead of answering, they said, uh, it says that they were silent. And he looked around at them. Uh, this is uh, uh, verse 5 now. And he looked around at them with anger. Again, a lot of people look at Jesus and say the only time Jesus displayed anger was that time when he was flipping over tables. But what I hope I'm showing you through the Gospel of Mark is there is situation after situation where Jesus Christ looks at the systems that people have put in place to keep people oppressed, to keep them downtrodden, to keep them uh, out of church, to keep them separated from God. Jesus looks at these systems and they make him angry. And Jesus looked around them in anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, I want you to notice the syntax here, the the way that this is ordered. Jesus didn't heal the hand and then get him to stretch it out. This guy had to reveal in front of everybody what was wrong with him before the healing took place. There are times in your life where you are going to have to step out in faith, not knowing what the consequences of your actions are going to be, but instead trusting and relying on Jesus to take care of it. And that is scary. 
This guy could have been kicked out of the synagogue. He could have been stoned for coming into the synagogue with a withered hand. Uh, All of his family relationships could have been severed because he had a withered hand. He would have for certain lost whatever job and employment that he had because of his withered hand. And so in front of God and everyone in the synagogue, Jesus says, stretch it out. Have a little bit of faith. Take it out. Stretch it out. And it was only then that Jesus healed the hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. There are times when you are going to have to take that first step no matter how afraid you are, how painful you think the consequences are going to be, how by taking that first step, you might isolate yourself from your family and friends and work environment. But there's something, something interesting that's from the book of Romans. And I want you to think about, when I'm reading this passage, think about the love that Christ displayed for this man uh, in his anger position towards the Pharisees and his willingness to heal the withered hands. This is what the book of Romans chapter 8 says. 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Uh, keep that sort of thought going and, 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 and maybe into, into this next slide. Or systems or politics, or skin color, or economic status, or education, or where you work, can any of that separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. What Jesus is saying in the synagogue is take a little bit of faith, step out in me, and I'm going to show you that my love is never going to be separated from you again. He says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what's wrong with you. I am the answer. I am the way that you can come into the presence of God. I am the way that is going to stop you from being separated for the rest of eternity. Jesus says, I am the answer. Nothing is going to separate you. And so, as we end our time together today, I want you just to think about the love that Jesus displayed. That love for us is what caused Jesus to step down from heaven, to set aside his divinity and his power, to become as a man, to walk on this earth and to live a human life And that on a random Saturday, Jesus walked into a synagogue where there was a man with a twisted and withered hand. And there were people there plotting against Jesus. How easy would it have been Jesus? Scripture in the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus knew their hearts, uh, which is our understanding that he knew that they were trying to trick him into, into doing something that he shouldn't be doing. It would have been really easy for Jesus just to sit down in the back 
sit in the back row, not cause waves, not heal this guy. It would have been really easy to say, hey, look, you know, you know what? I'll heal you. I'll heal you tomorrow. Tomorrow's Sunday. The Sabbath is over. No law against it. You've lived with it this long. What's, what's another 24 hours? It would have been really easy for Jesus just to, to take that uh, path of least resistance and not get into any trouble. But Jesus saw a system that frustrated him. He saw a system in place that was oppressing people, and it frustrated him. Jesus saw the way that these people in a position of power in a church that was supposedly worshipping him, and they were using that position of power to oppress people, to make people feel less than, to make people feel that they were worth less than others. And it made Jesus angry. And so he made this person stand up and he healed him on the spot to demonstrate that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come into your presence today. Lord, we recognize that there are systems in place in this world that are going to try and separate us from your love. But Lord, we also acknowledge the truth of Scripture that nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And with that, Lord, we ask that you embolden us, that you give us the courage to step out in faith when we need to, to step out when we might not know what the answer is going to be, when we not 